If you have your scriptures with you, please open them to uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll start this uh, next section in 1 Peter. We've been working through this uh, book of 1 Peter throughout the summer, or throughout the the spring, and uh, we should finish it up in the next few uh, weeks probably. Uh, And I hope that you all have enjoyed our time in this wonderful uh, letter from Peter to the churches in Asia. So 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's all right. The uh, passages are conveniently printed for you in your bulletin, so you're welcome to uh, uh, read along with there. So now hear God's Word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. But they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 4 is a return to the topic of suffering and particularly suffering unjustly. Now, normally when we're reading along in our Bibles, particularly in the New Testament, and you hear these apostles and other writers talk about suffering, we tend to generalize suffering and think that that suffering is only with respect to any kind of suffering. You might have a bad disease or lose a job or your kids go sideways or maybe your marriage is coming apart or uh, whatever. Maybe you've got some other problems, whatever they are. We tend to lump all suffering together. But very often, if you're careful, the, co- the context in which these apostles are talking is about suffering, is about alienation, about marginalization for being a Christian. Something that in America is very, very difficult because we have a, a very privileged position in America. And whatever you might think about things that go on in the news about, you know, Christians being uh, persecuted here and there in the United States. That is not suffering. That may be inconvenient, but that is not what the apostles are talking about. You have to go out of this country and really get outside of the United States to see what it means to really suffer as a Christian, to be marginalized and alienated. And you can read about it every day in the news And so, historically, God's people, those that are true to the people, uh, to to God, the people that remain true to Him, are marginalized. In ancient Israel, at this time, when when Peter was writing slightly thereafter, uh, the Jews in general, especially the elite and religious leaders, had a very privileged position with the Roman government and with the religious elite in their country. So they weren't persecuted. 
But if you got down into the communities, uh, the people who really believed the Bible and who people like uh, Peter who followed the Messiah Jesus, they began to get uh, marginalized. And so this morning, we're going to look at this passage. The problem that comes with this one, like the one we looked at the last two weeks, is this little phrase, the gospel was preached to the dead in verse uh, 6. This is why the gospel was preached even to those that are dead. That can be a real uh, challenge to us, especially Protestants, because we don't believe in those, uh, that there's any uh, a post-mortem chance at salvation. We don't have, in our theology, we don't have a, a purgatory, a place of space between ultimate salvation and uh, the, the ultimate judgment. And so that can be a problem. I'm going to try to help, uh, help us walk through that this morning. So we're going to look at three things. Here's your outline uh, for this morning. First of all, Peter tells us, prepare your mind. Prepare your thinking, how you're thinking around that. And secondly, thicken your hide. Prepare your mind, thicken your hide. In other words, some stuff's going to happen, so thicken your hide. And finally, don't believe what you see. Don't believe what you see. And this is hard for human beings. In every age, it's been hard for people. We, we say, I will only believe if I see. Even the followers of Jesus, Thomas famously said, I will only believe if I see it. And if I put my finger and if I touch and all of that, he would not believe. So there's a resistance in us to belief. And in this case, I'm going to agree and say, don't believe what you see. Prepare your mind, thicken your hide, don't believe what you see. Prepare your mind. Verses 1 and 2. Now, look, most of you have Bibles. Uh, if you don't have them with you, then, uh, you know, understand. But uh, at least in your translation here, uh, this is from the ESV. And I'm going to give you what I think uh, I spent way more time than I should have going through this passage over and over and over, like the one from two weeks ago, uh, and, and trying to look at, at the original language and trying to look at what scholars have said to, to help us get through these difficult uh, things, particularly the one from last week and now this one, verse 19 from last week and this one here in verse 6 about preaching to the dead. So let me walk you through this and I'm going to give you a couple places and you can write in your bulletin. It's okay. It's not sacrilegious. And if those of you who do write in your Bibles, you can write this in and, and you can put next to it, Chuck, that way you know that it's not inspired. Uh, but this is from the very, listen, from the very best scholars out there. But unfortunately, some, even some of our study Bibles don't have this, I don't think they have it right. And I'll explain why in a moment. Listen, here we go. Since Christ suffered in the flesh. Every time Peter uses this phrase, in the flesh, the Greek word sarts means flesh. But what Peter is doing with this phrase is not what the Apostle Paul does with the phrase. And because Protestants, and especially those of us who are Reformed, because our theology is so heavily influenced by the Apostle Paul, we tend to read into this phrase, in the flesh, Paul's theology. And Peter is not using it this way, and it's very important that you understand this. What Peter says every time he says in the flesh, not my opinion, this is from the very best scholars, when he says in the flesh, he's talking about not your fallen nature, the way Paul uses it as fallen nature. He's not talking about that. 
He's saying Christ did not suffer in His fallen nature. Do you see the problem theologically? Christ is not fallen in His nature. He was divine in His nature, as well as human. There was no sin in Him. Peter already said that. He had no sin. So we're not dealing with Paul's theology. We're dealing with Peter's theology. And here's what should be there. In the flesh should be there, but they should have put a little asterisk next to it. They should have said, in the time of this earthly life. Peter is using a phrase, an idiom, that meant in the time of this earthly life. So, here we go. Listen. Since Christ suffered in the time of His earthly life, in the time of His earthly existence, arm yourselves. It's an imperative. It's a command. You must arm yourselves. It's a military. Those of you, many military families in our church, you know what this means. It means you go and you get your stuff, all your stuff, your gun, your knives, your, your armor, your body armor, your equipment, your canteen, you got to have water, you know, your grenades, all of your stuff. You prepare yourself in this life and death, taking up of that which you will need, taking it up in the time of this earthly life. With the same way of thinking. He's saying the armor that you're going to be putting on is a different way of thinking. We've been talking about this for weeks and weeks through the book of 1 Peter. And he continues to exhort us to do that very thing. We have to think differently about the way we look at the world. We'll talk about it in a minute. It's a deliberate... The word he uses is very interesting. It means a deliberate decision, an intention, a resolve. So much of our lives as Christians is just kind of waiting and reacting to things. Peter's saying, no, no. Be proactive. Arm yourselves. Take up this different way of thinking. Deliberately, intentionally. For, here we go, whoever has suffered in the flesh, that means in the time of this life, As you live out your Christian life, people are not going to like it. They're not going to like that you don't go and do the things that they do. And believe me, they're not what we think they are. Like we said very early on in this letter, it's not smoking, drinking, uh, chewing tobacco, dancing, playing cards, and going out with girls that do. Remember that? That is not what it is. But unfortunately, Christians seem to think that we have this weird kind of, you know, well, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to use bad language. I can show you some of the most unbelievable language that you can, if I translated it for you from Hebrew or Greek, everyone would leave the room and say, Chuck, we can't stand him. You, you may do that anyway, but, but you, it, there, there's some hard language in the Bible. The Bible doesn't mince words. It's not some sort of a puritanical book. It's very earthy. So we're not talking about that. What we're talking about is in the flesh, in the time of this earthly life, ceasing from sin and pursuing God. In other words, you're going to, as a Christian, you're going to be able to look at sin. You know what it is, by the way. We'll talk about that again in a second. We know what sin is. And you're going to be willing to look at it and say, I'm not going to redefine sin for my own convenience, and I'm not going to put any buts. When I commit a sin, I'm going to own it. I'm going to go to it, look it right in the eyes. I'm going to kiss it on the lips if I have to. It's going to be mine. 
And I'm going to confess it to God and I'm not going to play games with it and I'm not going to say, well, you know, that was then, this is now, that was this, this was that. It's his fault, it's her fault, it's their fault, it's its fault, whatever. No, we're going to own it because look, folks, if you don't own it, it will always have power over you. You own it. You confess it. And like we say in Alcoholics Anonymous and other, other recovery groups, until you're willing to admit your powerlessness, you have no power. You must admit your powerlessness. And the Apostle Paul said, in your weakness, Christ's strength will be made strong in you. And So we should never, ever shy away and try to redefine our sin. Never. In the time of this earthly life, we have ceased from sin conscious assault on sin and pursue so that, he says, now here's another place where you should change the translation. Humbly, respectfully, I say, you may not want to. Maybe after you read what Dr. Sproul says about it, you change your mind. Okay, I'm taking a chance here. (laughs) Going against the Reformed Study Bible. But I'm going to encourage you to read it this way. And then you can do your own study, and if you figure something else out, we can talk about it. So that, for the rest of your lives in the flesh, in the time of this earthly life, you are no longer driven by human passions, epithumia is the word, but instead for God's will. Here it is. You're making a conscious decision. You're arming yourselves. You're preparing your mind. You're looking out at the world and you're saying, you know, there are a lot of things out there competing for my attention, wanting my heart. There are things out there that already have my heart. And it is not God, it is not Jesus, and it's not His will. His will and Jesus are sort of here next to all these competing things. I have to make a conscious decision to assault those things and, and go against them with all my might and elevate Jesus and God's will for me. And I have to do that every day, but probably many more times a day than you might think. Remember a few weeks ago, the gospel renewal cycle? We talked about repentance, faith, obedience. If that cycle is not running, running like an engine inside the center of your heart, inside your Christianity, Christianity will become wearisome to you. In fact, last week I told you I don't recommend it. I'm going to say it again. I don't recommend Christianity if you are not willing to take up your cross and follow Him. Don't do it. It's a terrible religion if you're going to do it on your own works and merit. It is the worst of religions. In fact, it will crush you to the ground if it's all about how well you're doing and about your morality and your performance. If it's all about the hoops you're jumping through to be a Christian. But once your mind changed, once you resolve to follow Christ, and once you see that He, for you, as you, in your place, not only died on the cross, but He lived a perfect life for you. That removes the shackles so that you can assault sin in your life and not feel like you're living under condemnation and that you've somehow disappointed God. Do you know that He is so enthralled? He is so much in love with you that the Bible says this. 
listen, that while we were yet sinners, what does it say? Christ died for who? The ungodly. What that should signal to every one of you who have been living under the burden of sin and the slavery of sin is that on the worst day of your life, Jesus died for you. That every day after that is a good day. Even the days when you shake your fist and say, I'm not going to obey you today. Because like a loving father with a three-year-old, I've had my granddaughter with us uh, this week, and you know, you, you know that three-year-olds are three-year-olds, kind of like us. You know, we get naughty or do something. You know what? Uh, my, my sweet daughter-in-law, she knows, she's a wonderful mother. She goes and she just gets her and kind of traps her. And she can wiggle and do all she wants. But in her mother's arms, she finds love, correction, and safety. Do you feel that in your Christian life? That when you sin, do you feel God or see God holding His nose and backing away from you? Or do you see Him when you're sinning and you're shaking your fist and you're stomping your foot and saying, I will not obey? Do you feel His loving arms come around and embrace you? Do you feel that? Because if you don't, Christianity will be hateful to you. You'll hate it. And I know I'm speaking from personal experience. I've shaken my hands, my fist in God's face as a Christian, as a pastor. I'm ashamed to say, more times than you know. And I have yet to find my way back to Him unless He first draws me to Him. Unless He makes the first step, I would stay away forever, wouldn't you? But when I feel the crushing burden of sin, when I feel the loneliness in my soul, when I know I've, I've, I've broken that relationship, I don't have to run to find Him. He's already got me. All I have to do is fall down at His feet and cling to Him. And there He is. Isn't that your experience? And if it's not, I want you to have that experience. Paul is saying, cease from sin. When he talks about the will of God, let me be very clear, and I just want to make a footnote, and later maybe after questions and answers, if you want, I'll be happy to answer them. He's not talking about the secret will of God, like where you should go to college, or who you should marry, or what you should have for lunch after church, or whether or not you should uh, go to San Diego for your vacation, or Cancun, or whatever. You know, I mean, those are hard decisions, I know. What is God's will where I should spend my vacation? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about his known will. The will he's already said. He's already said, here's what I want you to do. In fact, he said it in this book. You know what his will is. Ten commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. We already know what they are. And he's talking about that kind of will. In other words, you pursue that and everything else will come and you'll know where to go for vacation. In fact... If you're following his preceptive, what theology calls preceptive will, if you're following after him in faith, you can't make a wrong decision. Pick the college you want to go to. It doesn't matter. If you're following him, every one of your decisions is okay. How many times has God put five things in front of us and says, choose one? And you know, oh, which one is God's will? Whichever one you choose is his will. If you're acting in faith, if you're living in faith, if you're trusting Him, you can't make a wrong decision. Does, does that free any of you from the burden? Anyone? Only me. Thank you, Raul. There's two. 
do you see what, I mean, God is not wanting you to fret over every decision. What is God's will? What is God's will? Dr. Bruce Waltke said, you're not going to know his decretive will or his secret will until it happens. R.C. Sproul says the same thing. I don't know how many theologians have said the same thing. His secret will is what? Say secret. (laughs) Secret will is secret. You're not going to know it until he reveals the secret. So quit fretting over it. Live in faith and make your decisions. Decide you're going to have a salad instead of chicken fried steak. It's okay. So what's he saying? Live deliberately. Live intentionally. Don't just be a reactor. Be proactive in your Christian life. And it can become joyful and wonderful. And instead of being a burden and, oh, I hate being a Christian. I wish I was on mouth. You know, be a Christian and you can really enjoy it. It can be wonderful for you. You'll suffer. It's going to be tough. It's not for everybody. But you don't suffer alone. And you don't do it alone. He's there with us. And He told us, here's my will. You want to hear God's will? I'm going to give you His will right now. Listen, He already told us. Do not repay evil for evil. Reviling for reviling. On the contrary, here's His will. Bless your enemies. For this you were called. Unjust suffering. He's saying, this is my will for you Christians. Great club to be in. Here's my will for you, that you should suffer unjustly. So embrace it and say, fine, if people don't, and if it's because you're offensive, that's a different story. But if it's because you're truly following your Savior and there's something some of you saying, well, you know, gosh, I, you know, they're just not right, something not right about them. Well, good. Be different that way. Thicken your hide. What does that mean? Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, this is really fascinating. In the time uh, that's passed, it suffices, it suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. And then he lists these really notorious sins, living in sensuality, passion. And I'm not going to explain those because you can get a dictionary and go look them up for yourself. They are the usual list, and they are pretty, pretty bad. But what he's saying is, he's, he's actually, Peter is being very sarcastic. Now, you don't pick it up in, in Greek, but in, I mean in English, but in Greek, he's being very sarcastic. And what he says is, when he says the time that passed suffices for doing what Gentiles do, he's actually saying, enough already! That's exactly what he's saying. Enough already! It's been enough! You've done enough of that stuff! He chides them. He says, be done with that life. I mean, after all, how great was that? Do you remember? Like the proverb that says, you know, uh, talking about the one who drinks, and it says, you know, I, I, I wake up with a headache, I got bleary eyes, and I, I climb a mast, I'm up there all night, I'm moving back and forth, I feel like I'm seasick. He's describing, you know, drunkenness and a hangover. And then the last phrase in the proverb goes, when can I get another drink? And if you've struggled with a, an addiction like that, uh, you know exactly what that is. Peter's saying, be done with it. You used to be Gentiles. Look, he's, he's emphasizing your new identity. It's like when your children go astray and you call your children, you sit them down and you say, you know, you have a good name. You come from a good family. You have a good reputation. You know, Isaacs don't do that. You know, I tell my boys, I used to, now I can't tell them anything, they're old. When they were little, I could tell them. They ignored me when they were little. 
they're listening now a little bit more. But you know, you're an Isaac. You know, Isaac don't do that. That's not our identity. That's not who we are. We do these things and give them the list, whatever it is, for your family. He's appealing to your identity. He's saying, look, you're new creatures. You had that old life. Remember what it was like? It wasn't that great. Be done with it. Enough of that. Move on. And often, you know, we forget the gospel, don't we? Aren't our memories short? Do you know we have to be reminded of the gospel? Do you know how often you need to be reminded of the gospel? All the time. Yeah, no, all the time's too vague. How, how long? Daily, not bad. Daily. Daily's true. That, that's still too... Actually, you need to be... I'll tell you exactly. Every seven days. Is that self-serving or what? Don't you love that? Oh, our pastor really put guilt on us today to come to church. Well, the cycle of the Sabbath, there's some, there's some logic in that. You know, I'm, I'm kidding around, tongue-in-cheek a little bit. But Scott's right. It's every day. But, but no, every seven days. You know, by the time you get to church, don't you feel a little beat up, a little worn out? I do. I look forward to coming. I look forward to singing. And I look forward to the table more than anything else. Every week is why we do it every week. Because I'm hungry. By the time I hit Sunday, I'm hungry. I need Him. Even though I spend all week, I mean, it's what I'm, I'm, I'm paid, you know, an obscene amount of money to study the Bible so I can show you how smart I am. I mean, folks, that little piece of bread and that wine is everything to me. Seeing you and singing and hearing our stories, that's what I need. Every week I need it. We forget the gospel. He's saying enough already. Move on. And then he encourages us. Look at verse 4. He says, listen, you're in, com- you're, in- you're in good company. When they make fun of you, when they malign you, when they're shocked at you, you're actually in good company. He says they're surprised. The word surprised is not really as strong as it should be. It actually means they are gaped. Gape mouthed at you. In other words, because you won't follow them into all these crazy things that they want to do, and these things that he lists here were culturally acceptable ways of behavior in the Greco-Roman world, which today we think only the bad people do that. No, in that world, everybody did that. In fact, if you didn't do those things, you were not considered a worshiper. That's why they called Christians atheists. Atheists were called Christians in those days because they wouldn't worship the gods and do all the things that the gods required, which much of it was immoral. It was, it was systematized immorality. We live in a very, in fact, in, in some respects, living in a moral culture is worse because we're not hit in the face by it. We actually, we actually will leave church today, some of us, thinking, I'm a pretty good person. And it's our very self-righteousness which condemns us the most. You see it? Okay. He says, you're in good judgment. They're going to be surprised. They're going to be gate-mouthed at you. Their, their mouth's going to drop open because you don't go along with all of their stuff. And that you actually are blessing those that occur. You're showing love to those that are different than you. You're, that you're not condemned in a Tory against everybody and everything. I, I just hate it when Christians are always out there shaking their fist at everybody. You know, shaking their finger at everyone. Like this. 
That doesn't do us any good, folks. Because behind the scenes, we're much like those people. We need to see that. All right. They malign you. The word he uses is blasphemy. They blaspheme. They're going to talk bad about you. You know, if somebody says the slightest little thing to us as Christians, oh, we're so prickly and oh, my feelings are hurt. My feelings are hurt. Well, boo-hoo. When are we going to get over that? You know, they say some horrible things about people in the Middle East who are Christians. And those people, they have to live that. They either give up their faith or die or live in a marginalized condition. And, And we just don't know that here. But that could change, yes? Probably in the life, many of us have, I've got two grandchildren and I just, I, I worry, I fret what their life's going to look like. You know, we got it pretty good right now. It may not always be that way. Jesus said, and Peter's remembering this. This is in Peter's mind. Remember, he was there when Jesus said this. Blessed are those uh, who, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! Be glad! Your reward in heaven is great! For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Who doesn't want to be in that company? I want to be in that company. He's saying, you're in good company. Don't be afraid. Don't let sticks and stones hurt. My words will never hurt me. No, words do hurt. But he's saying, don't be afraid. So they say it. You're in good company. Bear down. Don't give up. And don't be prickly and you have your feelings hurt over everything. And don't believe what you see. Let's do this quickly. Five and six. He said, listen, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Here's another one of those phrases. And what it means is all humanity for all time. Let me explain this and see if it makes sense to you. Because we're coming up to that verse that's difficult and kind of gets everybody off track. To judge the living and the dead in the Greco-Roman context in that world very much like our world today people believed then that when you die you die and you rot you go into the ground and your life is over no more judgment no eternal life no other world uh it's just over and so whatever judgment you got was in this life cause and effect therefore if you lived a really good life you should get blessings. And so the people who had money and had lots of kids and everything was going their way and they had status and prestige, they trooped around like Pharisees and look at me and look how well I'm doing because I'm getting God's blessing on me and look, I've got a thousand dollar suit and I've got a Gulf Stream and we worship in the Rocket Arena. Okay, I'm making a jibe at somebody. Anyway, never mind that. And you think to yourself, oh my gosh, they're the ones getting blessed. Well, if that's the case, so's the mafia. Right? I mean, if you look around, so there are a lot of people strutting around in $1,000 suits. If that's the way you're going to think, cause and effect, then you're going to think your life here is miserable because very often Christians are suffering in many ways other than that. And so they thought that all blessings and everything was all right now. So if, you're be- if you got it good, you're being blessed. But... 
If things are not going your way and you're suffering lack or your kids have gone sideways or your marriage is not doing well or your health is not that good or something's going on at work, whatever the case is, then what do we immediately start to think? Must be something I'm doing. I must not be in God's will, whatever that is. And we start second-guessing ourselves and condemning ourselves and wondering, am I doing something wrong? Do I not have enough faith? Uh, Maybe I'm not believing right. Maybe I'm going to the wrong church. I know Christ the King certainly not right. I've got to get out of there. Do you see what I'm saying? We tend to want to make everything about now. The Greeks did that. The Romans did that. We do that even today. But what Peter is saying is pretty revolutionary. Peter is saying, no, 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 no. Judgment is coming, and it's going to be for the living and the dead. He uses what's called a mirrorism, and he says this means every human being. The Greco-Roman world and everybody else in this world, they're not going to escape judgment. Someday they're going to have to stand at the bar of God and give an account for their life, and they're going to be surprised. You think they're gape mouth now, just wait till they're there and there's the judges there. And all their sins are on scrolls. Everything they've said, thought, or done is all written down. There's a record of everything. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Now what? And Peter is saying, don't worry. You know what? Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And then he says this. Listen, now now in this context, listen to me. And this will help you. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. John Owen says this, he is speaking of the righteous dead, the martyrs like you who are suffering marginalization and even possibly death at the hands of their enemies. Even your family and friends that have gone into death because of their faith. This is why the gospel was preached to them. That Now listen, that though they were judged in the flesh, in the time of this earthly life, the way people are, in other words, the thinking of the culture is, that person went to the grave alienated, marginalized, losing everything with no God's judgment was really hard on them because in this life they suffered. Look at what he says. The way people are, they appear defeated. He's telling Christians, you may appear you may appear to your culture to be weak and defeated and you have no power and it doesn't make any sense for you to let somebody else get promoted when all you have to do is turn around and say something to your boss about them and cut them down at the knees, then you can have their job that you're different that way. That you're loving your homosexual neighbor, that you're loving people that are different than you uh, in, in the pulley that we actually have democratic friends and that we respect we may not agree with their beliefs but we can, ex- we can respect them at least as human beings that we are actually different in that way that we actually love our neighbors and yet we die for living righteously or yet we get marginalized and, and, and Peter's saying Don't believe what you see. Judgment is coming and you will be vindicated. Look what he says. It's right there. But we get caught up in that 
to the dead and we get all off whack. The way people are judged here, it appears our weakness is defeat, that our efforts to live righteous are for nothing. But he says, no, that they, talking about us, might live in the Spirit the way God does. He's talking about a resurrected life. He's talking about a future that doesn't end in the grave, but a future that goes beyond what the Greco-Roman world imagined. A recreated heaven and earth where one day we will stand before that bar and one day all those books will be opened and all those sins will be rolled out and we'll see every single one of them and a thousand more as that hymn we sing says. We're going to see them all. We're going to see them all written in red bold letters. And the judge is going to say, what do you say to this? And the answer you give is the one that will determine your eternal destiny. And if you stand there and you start arguing with the judge and saying, well, you know, I had a bad upbringing and I had this and I had that and I had this problem and I had that problem and all that, then look out, the trap door below your feet will open. But if you look at that list and you say, that's my list. In fact, you missed a few. But please see my lawyer. He's right here. And up will stand your Savior Jesus with those scars in His hand and He will say to His Father, Father, You sent me for Him. You sent me for her. And the Father joyfully says, I know. And He will embrace us in His arms of love. Jesus Christ swallowed victory. He swallowed death, hell, and the grave, and He transformed it into victory. He didn't just throw it away or end it, folks. He consumed it. He took it in. He made it something else, and He turned the beast into a beauty. Me and you. He made us live not die. See heaven, not hell. No grave for you. The grave went for Him. No nakedness for you. He was stripped naked so we could be clothed with robes of righteousness. No forsakenness for you. For you, welcome and embrace. In fact, at our death, we are promised that the angels will gather us up before you ever see the inside. Your body will go in the grave, but the rest, who you are, will go and you will be ushered into God's presence and He will throw His arms around you and say, Welcome, I forsake my Son on the cross so you can can be welcome. And Peter is telling these poor people who are being marginalized that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Will you trust Him? Will you believe Him? I pray you will. Father, uh, thank You for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And out of gratitude and love for You, Father, we will obey. We will resolve to follow You. That we will be the best repenters there are. That in deep humility over our own sins, that we will be brokenhearted and look on the sins of others with compassion instead of hatred and derision. Help us, Father, 
to be the kind of people that others look at and shake their heads and say, how can they forgive that way? How can they love even their enemies that way? How can they face, face death the way they do? Oh, Father, I beg you to please make us those people, even the small church. If we can start with us, who knows where it can go. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.